Welcome to the Green Majority Podcast. If you can or are able and are interested in supporting the show, you can go to greenmajority.ca and click on the How You Can Help button. There's also a patron link there, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash greenmajority, and you can be a member and help support the show. One of the things it might do is help me get a better mic. <laughs> Enjoy the show. This is Stefan Hostetter, and I am just audible. So welcome to The Green Majority, everybody, on CAT 89.5. It's going to be a great show for you tonight. Uh, just to tease, uh, Darren Kester is in the building. Not in the studio right now, in the building. He gives a wave to the audience, as I'm sure all of you can tell. Uh, so we'll, he'll be showing up uh, in the third part of this show. But right now, uh, we're very excited to be joined uh, in studio by M.A. Ma. Thank you very much again, as always. Uh, and also Kevin Waugh. Nathan. Hi. <laughs> How you doing? Uh, and, and, and so the, the framing of the show today, it was, as, I, as I mentioned on the last show, uh, we, we, we like to have themes here, don't we, M.A.? Sometimes. Oh, we, some, don't, we don't force connections, but we do like to point out overall trends and themes, for right. sure. Amazing. Uh, and so the theme of this month, uh, this week is actually, uh, so we just had, it's also a, a bit of a reflective period. Because uh, the dominant narrative coming out of Paris, uh, the, the COP21, of course, uh, was that in the beginning, it was the beginning of the end of fossil fuels, or at least that's what all of the press releases wanted you to think. Um, and or at least it was the very, at the very least, it was the beginning of the last wave of environmentalists fight against the ever increasing emissions. I think that's maybe more more fair, at least for the, how the activists felt about it. Uh, the, you know, this was at least a agreement they were going to use as the backs for the for the for the fight that, you know, the fight of the century, uh, as we would obviously consider it. Um, but now a few months later, it's already been signed, uh, which is arguably better than could have been anticipated. Uh, we just had one of the largest global actions against fossil fuels uh, with Break Free. When in the second part of the show, we'll have Atia Jafar of 350.org coming to talk about that part of this. Uh, and Ontario uh, has, uh, has, seems to have pledged $7 billion in their carbon reduction strategy. Uh, so good news, right? Uh, also, this week had some bad news, uh, including, uh, of course, Kinder Morgan, the NEB approved Kinder Morgan, uh, and Saskatchewan has basically, in their throne speech, come out denying climate change. Uh, so, you know, you, you take a st- two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. Uh, and so what we're going to do with this show is try to actually take a look back, uh, starting uh, with Kevin Roy. Uh He was a U of T, U of T PhD student uh, who was part of the delegation uh, to COP21. Uh, and take a look at negotiations in Paris, uh, and then to sort of move forward to break free with, uh, with a T in the second half, and to sort of see where... Uh, you know, where we're headed, where we started, where we're headed, and, and, and project into the future of, of, uh, of what's going on. Also, a whole bunch of fun news that we're going to slide in throughout the show because uh, we're that skilled at this. Uh, so, but to start, to start the show uh, with you, Kevin. Um, back in Paris, before heading, I'm just interested, like, because there was a whole wide range of expectations for Paris, anywhere from this is going to be complete failure like the rest of them to this is literally going to save the world. Uh, but when you sort of got there at the beginning, what was the atmosphere of the talks, and especially within the sort of civil service or the places that you were sort of around, uh, did, did people actually think we were going to get something done? Mm, well, uh, first of all, good morning to you, good Stefan. Morning. Good morning, <laughs> Um 
Well, I think that the um, the the overall expectations as a start of the conference was uh, there was a very broad range. Um, so I think that uh, the community in general was present, had a good vibe about it because um, there had already been a lot of prep work going into the conference itself. But um, I, from talking to people, especially surprisingly from uh, the business community, um, were actually not that optimistic about the, the, abil- uh, the ability of the governments to reach an agreement. Mm. Um, so, but I think as the, as, the, as the conference evolved and as the discussion progressed, uh, it became clear that actually everybody was, was pulling in the same direction. There was a bit of a fear around uh, the beginning of the discussion around the 1.5 versus 2 degree target. Um, but in the end, I think uh, it was probably, as a lot of people put it, the best we could have um, achieved uh, given the circumstances. Great. Okay. So, so th- th- I want to get back to the 1.5 in yeah. half a second, but uh, I think it's good to actually, I think that's actually, actually you remind me of a good question here, which is uh, everyone sort of has a different opinion now of actually what they, ha- how they felt Paris went. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and again, it's yeah. the same range of save the world to, to the, there was nothing. Uh, where do you fall on that spectrum? Um, I think that where I fall on the spectrum is on the very cautiously optimistic. Okay. <laughs> so it's a very prudent uh, position, I think, <laughs> and I'm not, you know, uh, but I think w- what I feel is the most important thing that came out of Paris, um, because obviously with the commitments that were um, actually put on the table, it's no, nowhere near uh, close enough to actually reach the targets that um, have been uh, put forward. Um, but I think is the shift in mindset. Um, whereas a few years ago, just a few years ago, people had in their minds, I think, the idea of even a two-degree target as being, you know, the absolute outmost we could consider. And the fact that now the two-degree target is, the well below two-degree target is in the agreement itself, and people are even willing to consider 1.5. I think that's, you know, this change in the wording that actually indicates that there's been a shift in people's perspective with respect to it. So if instead of becoming like a, an, you know, the, the best scenario we could possibly imagine, it becomes the mainstream scenario, then I think that it makes it easier for real action to actually come out of, come out of it. Kevin, I understand that you come with a scientific background. Yes. So when, when we've talked about sort of integrating or mainstreaming this idea of 1.5 degrees Celsius, yes. um, but we're seeing this huge sort of deficit or gap between the political speak um, and the policies that are actually going to bridge that gap between Absolutely. what the, the, scientif- the scientists are telling us. Um, so, for example, we've had this news that three months in a row um, – global average temperature has smashed the record. So Mm -hmm. April's been the hottest April on record. And, you know, the last seven months were were one degree Celsius um, above the 1951 to 1980 mean. Um, So when you're sitting where you are as somebody with a scientific background, and there's essentially these alarm bells going off in terms of saying, well, we're already on this course that we're, we're barely... Um, going to meet with all the measures in full force, this 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, target. How does that make you feel as somebody who was present when this came about? Are you still optimistic that um, the mindset, the shift in mindset is really enough to sort of carry us through making those Mm -hmm. sweeping policy changes that we need to make? Well, I think that's where the cautiously uh, (laughs) optimistic comes in my, uh, in, in where I stand, because um, of course, it's you know it's a little bit of a progress from what we where we were before, but um, it's of course nowhere near we need to be um, because I think that there's even 
in terms of understanding of the scientific, con like the consequences of climate change, so the scientific understanding, I don't think has really made it through to the uh, the, po the the politician world. Um, and and I think that's really unfortunate because if we think even about um, rises that are temperature rises that are closer to 1.5 degree or even one degree, um, there are still you know very important consequences that um, will 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 occur uh, on the climate system. Um, what I study is past sea level change, and to me, I think sea level change in the next uh, centuries is really one of the you know, uh, most important impacts that people tend to underestimate because it's so far off. And, and, and so gradual. Uh, you know, exactly. If, if you slowly, slowly lose uh, your, your space. Yeah. And Darren, uh, I said he wouldn't be in until, until, the, until the third quarter, but he couldn't even get himself there. What's up? <laughs> oh, I just, uh, I have a, a question for the panel, if you will. Yeah. Um, I've been binging on home on, uh, from lack of anything else to do, on American news because the American elections are hilariously, it's a roller coaster ride, it's a blockbuster. <laughs> Um, and it's far more interesting than anything on Netflix. Um, and one of the things that I've noted, we, we saw during Harper's reign, um, the impudence of the Canadian prime minister to Im influence foreign policy. Uh, if in a nightmare scenario, Trump were to be elected, I think a, a far more realistic than most people give it credit for scenario, nightmare scenario where Trump gets elected. I think Justin Trudeau will be equally as impotent in influencing Canada's position on the world stage. Um, so I'm wondering uh, specifically with Kevin, but anyone please comment, uh, on thoughts of you know how much to what degree does Canada's internal policy even matter, based on you know with reference to what's going on in the the U.S. The U.S. is hilariously corrupt and is controlled by corporations. They dictate policy to everybody else, including us. Um, do we matter at all? Do, is, should we not be focusing on what's going on in the U.S.? Uh, well, okay. So do, you, do you want to jump in, Kevin? You want to take that one? Sure. Um, well, I think the way I see it is that, um, and the way that. The economy, for for good or bad, is has become so integrated um, worldwide that if you have, um, even if the U.S. ends up pulling in another direction, I think Canada's influence will be felt because of that integration of the economies. So the U.S. cannot go on its own and do what it what it wants on that file if everybody else pushes the other way. So I think that's more from that global perspective. It's not ideal, and it's very scary to see that what, what could happen on that front. Like, yeah, uh, yeah I, th I think you'd also see the United States becoming increasingly isolationist. That's a big part of Trump's policy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think you'd honestly, one part of the things you'd see is that you'd see Canada moving away from, uh, moving away at least from all of its trade with the United States and actually probably diversifying where its its trade is, mm -hmm. uh, in part because the United States would be, because a big part of Trump's Trump's foreign policy is to, is, and trade policy is to actually, you know, he's he's a Republican who's against quote-unquote free trade. Uh, he's sort of a, a, a anomaly on that front. Yeah, I mean, that would be that would be an extremely long term process because our economies are so integrated. But, you know, I was having a very similar conversation to a member of parliament with a member of parliament a few months ago. And he said, well, you know, if the US doesn't get on board, aren't we just a drop in a bucket, basically? And I said, but we do have input into the quality of air that we breathe. So just taking it down a level um, and not just thinking about global emissions and the big emitters, um, everyone always likes to default to China and the US. But essentially, as much as we it is shared air, shared commons, if we continue to pollute, say, in the greater Toronto area, the way we are, we're already seeing respiratory problems, especially, especially around uh, among young children. Um, so essentially, do we not want to control 
our own quality of life. Because as much as things can blow over from the U.S., we do have an immediate impact in our own surrounding environment. And I think people lose sight of that sometimes mm-hmm. when we talk about these big numbers. Yeah, and I, th- and I think it's also important to note that a lot of Canadian policy isn't directed by the entire United States, but states themselves. You know, California is the one is is the state that gets to decide what our what what basically our vehicle reg- what our vehicles are. Uh, and, and cities themselves. And cities, yeah, exactly. And cities themselves have, have an impressive power mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, so to bring it back to some to uh, to sort of your area of expertise, which is sea level rise, Kevin. Um, there's another article that came out uh, from about, about that aspirational 1.5 target, uh, which basically it's Carbon Brief has issued a report arguing that if you understand our current CO2 emissions, uh, we're basically five years away uh, from 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 a good chance of preventing ourselves from under 1.5 degrees. Uh, which means that we're looking at two again. Uh, and I sort of want to understand, you, you sort of, I believe it's since the last ice age you've started sea level rise. And you also mentioned that there are some current effects even going, going right now uh, that, are, that, that, that should be concerning. So I'm kind of curious if you could sort of give us an overview of what, to, what one would expect, say, between even from one where we're at now in sea level rise all the way up to, say, two and then beyond. Yeah. Um, so I think the, main, the first thing to understand before we, we go into mm-hmm. giving actual numbers is the fact that um, sea level rise is is not a uniform process. So a lot of regions will in around the world will be uh, much more impacted than others, mm-hmm. uh, simply due to a geology or to the recovery com- from the the last ice age. So there are there are there are um, a lot of impacts that go into that. And further than that, um, there are many things that impact sea level. There is not only the fact that you've got melting ice sheets, which are not the process of which is not very well understood yet. There are a lot of tip- tipping points in those systems that we don't understand very well yet. Um, for So a lot of the uncertainty a century from now comes from that. But there's also the fact that a temperature rise means warmer water, which uh, means that sea level would rise by itself just because it's warmer water. Uh, so thermal expansion of the water itself is an important component. So there are many things that go into, into that. And I want to say that if we look at the 1.5 or 2 degree, um, it's hard to, to have, as I said, to have a, a meaningful number, mm-hmm. a very specific number, but uh, we're still looking at uh, sea level rise that will go around one meter um, for the century and probably way beyond that. Um, even at 1.5 degrees uh, to 2,200, it could reach two meters depending on those, uh, the reaction of the ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica. So um, it, it's a very... I think it's a very concerning uh, process because if you think about infrastructure, um, a lot of the investments that happen now or say in the next 50 years will not feel the, the most of the sea level impact, but you still committed to having that infrastructure in place for 100 years, which then becomes an issue. Yeah. Uh, so could you give us an understanding of people here say one meter of sea level rise yeah. uh, and then they think, well, tides go in and out. Or anything like that. Like I, I, I'm, I'm even sort of struggling understanding sort of what what that looks like okay. in, a, in, a, in a real in a, in, a, in a, you know. Does that mean Florida's gone? How many how many meters does that have to rise for, for Florida to no longer exist? Well, Florida is depending on, on, on where you go in in the state um, is already um, going to be in trouble um, right. with the current sea level projections. Uh, for instance, with the city of my of Miami uh, by mid century, could already feel a lot of a lot of problems. The main impact of sea level um, comes from the fact that you raise the, if you raise the mean sea level and then you have storms on top of them, then that's where the issue so it becomes important. So 
I think that the the way the best way to frame it is how you know floods that are one in a hundred year events for certain locations how that statistic will change in the future. So, for instance, there are uh, studies that suggest that um, one in a hundred year events um, in New York could become one in ten year events um, throughout the 21st century. So, from a planning perspective, that becomes very very uh, important, especially with what we saw recently um, with uh, the problems they had with uh, hurricanes reaching, reaching the coast there. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually was in New York City right after Hurricane Sandy about, yeah. a, about a week later. Uh, I, I think I, the first day that, that some of the subways were reopened, I was, I was on it. And, and that was the crazy thing was the subways were totally decimated mm-hmm. uh, because they're all underground. Yeah. Uh, and and you they couldn't go through all their parks because it, it was it was a it was a whole you know the whole lower lower side was was just was just devastated. And on top of that, maybe if I should ask uh, this this perspective of looking how floods could happen and how their frequency could change in coastal regions is a very I would say Western perspective on it because of course there are countries that are very low lying in themselves, close to sea level that will be directly impacted by. Um, Actual, the actual level of the mean sea level. You don't need to have storms for them to disappear under uh, sea level-wise projections. Right. My understanding is that for some of the small island nations, we're actually looking at that happening, say, in our lifetimes. Is that right? Like, in terms of some of the very low-lying uh, small islands, is that possible um, that in our lifetime we will see islands disappearing? Yeah, yeah. It's already it's already started for some of the lower lying ones. Um, but of course, the thing is, is that as I mentioned before, sea level is not uh, a single. There's not only a single factor right. changing sea level. So, what you will see is that for regions where that are currently subsiding already because of tectonic activity or other processes, then if on top of that you put sea level rise, then those are the places that will be the first affected. And actually, mostly affected by that. Awesome. Uh, so we're going to go to. We're almost done here, so we're going to go music break in about a minute or two. But I want to give you sort of one last shot uh, to explain. Um, you know, you 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 were at Paris. You obviously uh, care mm-hmm. about this a lot. Uh, what's the sort of thing? If you had one thing you wanted to get people to know better or more, like I didn't even know the like when you mentioned the the fact that sea level rises because it's warmer temperature and it'll expand. I never thought of that. I had never even I, that was not something I ever factored in. So, what's something that you sort of wish people would understand better? Um, I think that really the way I see it is that um, a lot of the um, I feel that what stops a lot of action from happening from governments is the fact that the population in general doesn't seem to grasp the the long term consequences. Um, we're not very as as a species, I think, uh, you know, uh, built to think in those long term hundred year consequence uh, time fr- uh, frame. So I think that really it's for people to think as much as possible a hundred years from now, what are the consequences of what we're doing now? And for governments that's, that want to get reelected for in four-year cycles, mm-hmm. it's really hard to do that. And, uh, and I think that it, it's still a work in progress, and I think that there's a lot of education to still be done in the, in the general, in, in the public, and I think it's, it's important to actually do that, do that work because it will, that's what will ultimately drive action, is if people realize that there's really a problem to solve. Amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kevin Ra, uh, U of T PhD candidate uh, and COP21 delegate. Thank you so much. Thanks. Uh, I'm now enjoying the studio with Atiyah Jafar from 350.org, and Darren Kaster is back. Welcome, Darren. Moving slowly closer to the microphone. <laughs> exactly. Uh, next time, you're coming from my chair, Darren. I know you're coming from my chair. <laughs> 
Uh, but uh, but so so what we're doing today again as just a recap is that we're sort of we we started with COP twenty one and, and sort of what we saw there, uh, and then it was signed uh, and has not fully ratified in a lot of but but was at least signed in in, in New York a couple about a month ago, and now we're and then and then and then last weekend or over really we've been covering this for about a couple of weeks so it was quite a long process actually, uh, of of the sort of three fifty org's global action of break free. And uh, there's one tweet that said that there was in three different continents had uh, had some sort of action stopping fossil fuels at one time, and that was like a, a monumental occasion to some extent. Um, so, Atia, you uh, you were involved in three fifty org, obviously. Uh, can you sort of explain the rationale behind Break Free, uh, and and also what what took place? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to begin, it's uh, actually six continents. Um, Okay, closer <laughs> to the mic. <laughs> um, actually, so it was six continents. It's a, a glo- Break Free was a global wave of resistance against the fossil fuel industry. And um, by resistance, I mean really escalated direct action, um, largely involving civil disobedience in countries across the world. Um, and we were targeting as a movement um, some of the largest extraction points um, and transportation points for the fossil fuel industry. Um, and it de- and it's, it's no coincidence that it came almost about like six months after COP21. And the, the reason really is that um, as a movement, we know that the time to wait has ended, and it is the time where we need to, where our actions need to match the urgency of climate change. Um, and so, this global wave was kind of a, a way of sending a, a really, really clear and really bold message uh, in the aftermath of, of COP21 and after the agreement was signed. Um, and also, it was a defined moment for the movement. Uh, we weren't, um, you know, as historically, we've taken action. Um, we've we took action and formed red lines on the streets of Paris after COP21. Um, when leaders were meeting in New York, there was a, a 300,000 people march outside. Um, and this was this was a moment that we defined for ourselves and decision makers in the UN and politicians weren't defining for us. It was a movement um, of people deciding this is the time that we're going to take action as a global wave. Uh, so there were people in Germany, uh, 3,000 people in Germany over the course of a few days were taking action to uh, blockade one of the largest coal mines in the world. Um, and and this was something that um, they had done last year as well. And this was an action that they did again this year uh, in De Galande. Um, in, in Australia, we had 2,000 people also taking action against coal um, and shutting down a large coal port in Australia. Um, we had actions happening targeting coal in, in Turkey, in South, uh, South Africa, in, uh, in the Philippines as well. And in Canada, of course, we were targeting the tar sands. Um, and we were doing that by targeting uh, one of the transportation points um, and the Kinder Morgan uh, point in particular in Vancouver. Uh, so we, were, we surrounded the Kinder Morgan termin- terminal um, on the land and on the water. There were more than 800 people there, um, and uh, coincidentally, um, our action also fell days before the National Energy Board made made its recommendation on um, on the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Awesome. Um, so I want to get to the Kinder Morgan in half a second, but first I just want to. Not everyone gets the chance to sort of go out and, and be in these sort of actions. Uh, you know, some people it, it's not financially viable. So there's many reasons why they can't really do it. Uh, so I'm wondering if you sort of paint the picture of. So you were there in Vancouver, and I, you, can you sort of paint the sort of what that was like? Like, what were you doing? What was sort of the people around you? What was the energy like? And sort of how did that feel? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we were going into that action just really, really energized seeing everything that was happening around the world. So knowing that thousands of people had been out on the streets of the Philippines um, the weekend before, knowing that the day before people were were blocking the other end of the Kinder Morgan pipeline, like the American end um, at the oil refiner- refineries in Anacortes. So we were energized going in knowing that. Um, but the action itself was really, it was a remarkable thing. You know, like I think people often have this Im- image of protesters that they're always standing up against something, but we were very clearly there um, communicating our vision for the future um, and like and the better uh, world that we want to see if we do break free from fossil fuels. So um, our action on the land um, involved, um, we had so we had about over 600 people that were there uh, in a park close to the Kinder Morgan facility. Uh, so we, we came together um, and we marched down the street to the Kinder Morgan facility. We had really gorgeous banners, so everything from keep it in the ground banners um, to banners saying panels not pipelines, stand for Indigenous sovereignty. Um, we really had a really great arts team. And a lot of people came up to me afterwards saying that it was one of the most beautiful actions that they had seen because of the really gorgeous art. Um, once we got there, um, we were really like we had there isn't a lot of space outside the gates. So like because we were such a large crowd, we had really essentially just blocked the entire road that was there. Um, we had uh, we had locks that we used, and we locked um, our locks to the gates of the facility with messages tied in ribbons. So people had their own messages um, for Prime Minister Trudeau, for Kinder Morgan, just messages on, on why we need to break free from fossil fuels on the West Coast. Um, so uh, one woman uh, that I spoke to, um, Audrey, who's from the uh, Muskegon Nation, uh, so it was uh, her... Uh, her people's territories um, said that, that by locking the gates, it was actually that lock was setting her free. It was communicating a message, and just the permanence of that message on those gates um, was something that she found was um, setting her free, uh, which I found to be quite powerful. Um, we also had a tripod, a, a really uh, large. Uh, three-legged structure that we created, and we hung a banner off of it, which was a banner uh, addressing uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. So it said, uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, the future is 100% renewable energy. Um, So that was was kind of a way way for us to hold space and and block traffic from coming in as well. we also uh, painted a giant mural at the gates. So we had dozens of people that were painting a mural um, that was showcasing different kinds of solutions that we want to see. Um, and it, the banner read, or uh, sorry, the, the mural read, we have the solutions. So that was a really beautiful thing to be able to create together um, at this point of destruction, essentially. Um, and then on the water, we had about 200 kayaks um, launch from, from North Vancouver, so from the other side of the Kinder Morgan facility. And then they came to the to the ports as well. So the the kayaks formed a giant flotilla that surrounded the facility on the water. Um, and there were there was a there were some folks that took the extra step and um, crossed uh, the boom containment um, the containment boom in that area. Um, and uh, the folks on kay- kayaks as well had messages that they delivered. So they had their messages on ribbons as well, and they tied them uh, to the gates of the facility as well. So it was a really remarkable thing. Um, those of us that were on the land were trying to see, there was like a little opening where we could kind of see the kayak action, but we couldn't see it for very long. So I was on the land, so I didn't get a great shot of the the kayak um action, but we do have a lot of coverage of it, and a lot of it is on um, our website, which is canada.breakfree2016.org, so we have our pictures or videos up from that action. 
Atiyah, I just wanted to ask you, so the, the aims, I think, of Break Free are very clear. They're embedded in the name. Um, you've just sort of described the quality of the action that happened out west. In addition to the action being done and the experience that it provided to the people who are part of it, how do you measure success when you, you launch these kinds of initiatives? What does success look like to you um, beyond just, you know, the action itself happening and the nature in which it happens? How will you know that you're having an impact when you do this kind of work? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think um, there's multi, uh, there's definitely multiple layers of what we want to accomplish through an action. And I think um, for with Break Free and particularly in Vancouver, one of the major goals was um, to create a movement of people that has the skills um, and knowledge that they need in order to continue mobilizing and continue mobilizing at very specific political moments. So prior to Break Free, we had trainings for Kai activists because this is something that has happened in other parts of the world. It hasn't happened so much um, in Vancouver, where we have people taking to the water on kayaks to uh, take direct action against fossil fuel infrastructure. So I think skill building was a big piece of it. Um, and now I, I do feel quite confident as we've come out of that action that we've empowered people to have the skills that they need and to be able to to remobilize if they when they need to for um, for particular political moments. So that's a big thing as well. I think growing our movement and um, and really making it very clear that there is a strong people's movement that is standing and resisting the fossil fuel industry is a key piece as well. I think that when people take escalated action, I think it raises um, people's, it increases people people's understanding about a particular issue um, in a way that more passive actions don't necessarily. Um, and I also think that, you know, large-scale mobilizations where people are engaging in different ways are also a great way of growing people, g growing a movement and increasing the amount of people that are willing to come out onto the streets and take action as well. Um, and on, on, on a final note, I think it's very clear that it, it this this uh, this action did send a message um, to the government, and I think it is something that it, it's made it very clear that there will be a there will be a large mobilization of people that is willing to resist um, fossil fuel expansion on the West Coast and around the world. So I think it, it does send a message to politicians and decision makers and media um, about the power uh, of our movement. Amazing. Uh, speaking of decision makers, uh, uh, the the National Energy Board uh, shortly thereafter this, and it, it's funny as you send a message and then immediately they're like, "La la la, I can't hear you," uh, because the, shortly thereafter, uh, of course, the 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 Kinder Morgan pipeline or the twinning. Uh, of Kinder Morgan's controversial Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, was approved by the National Energy Board. Uh, it's a $5 billion project, uh, and they approved it with 157 conditions, uh, which is always the sounds like, how do you have 157 conditions and still be, but this is cool. There's 157 things wrong with it, but it's cool. That's this, no other no other part of the world is that a thing that exists, I don't think. Um, but it, and again, and, 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 and all the quotes are almost exactly out of the things you sort of see in the Harper Arids. You know, their quotes is, it's in Canada's public interest. Uh, and and it's like who so who did like you just had eight hundred people show up at your at Kimmerman's website saying this is not in our interest and then two days later be like it is how's that going um, so obviously so I don't want to get your uh, it's good no it's because you missed the fact that all the people who are against it are extremely ignorant and also uh, foreign funded uh, oh, right. Stefan all that's right. that's why he see he's trying to be nice mm. right so he didn't he doesn't want to say that but he's saying that you're all either paid to have this opinion or stupid ah, well I think Atia is uh, is foreign funded that's my my bad I think Atia yeah. Is. She doesn't seem dumb, so she yeah. has to be foreign. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but, but but that's sort of the that's like when I get obviously Darren is parodying one of the consistent responses to mm-hmm. any action among them. It's 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 you know it's the whole. I'm sorry. Well, I have to. Yeah, one yeah. More. This is a perfect time for one more anecdote. I had in my back pocket. Yeah. So uh, as uh, you know, again, I, I won't spend a bunch of time with it. But I, I've been off my feet, and so I have nothing to do with. But well, you know, read the news for a long time. And uh, and during the break free action, I, I was actually not not aware what was going on because I've been sort of irregularly plugged in. But I saw all the the bluster on on Twitter, and one of the things there was just a stream of stuff by the completely not at all funded by oil sands companies, uh, uh, not at all uh, you know a uh, propaganda outlet oil sands action. Uh, account um, that was, you know, putting out all sorts of uh, things like that and break free the foreign funded, whatever, all these, all the normal nonsense. And usually when I smack them upside the head with something, they usually like jump on, jump back and like, you know, fight back and send a bunch of like terrible thing, whatever. And it so what I just said was that, you know, it's uh, unlike the completely unfunded and not at all prepared in advance high res copies of uh, propaganda stuff that you're now spamming this hashtag account with this hashtag with on Twitter, uh, to which they actually didn't reply for once. Um, so I thought maybe I got their attention. I was also going to say, and by the way, thank you for helping make this hashtag trend. But I, I went back to sleep at that point. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, so that's what's the fascinating Kenner Morgan piece of words that is that it's wildly unpopular. The, the mayor of Vancouver is against it. The provincial government is against it. Uh, even and this is the provincial government who last week we reported said that Trudeau was not doing enough to export uh, to, to to use uh, natural resources in the West is still also then against this pipeline. It's, it's a wildly unprovable pipeline. Pipeline. So, T, I want to go back to you and sort of uh, as now as as an, as an organizer and as an activist, what's the next step on on this particular issue? Yeah, and uh, just to add <laughs> number of people and organizations and groups that are against it, the Slave Tooth Nation on the West Coast is actually taking uh, the government to court over Kinder Morgan as well. So there's just every level of resistance and every level of opposition to the pipeline. Um, so the question was about the next steps mm-hmm. for the movement or the next steps for the pipeline? Uh, well, the next steps for well, both, if you want to go for it. Yeah, well, so the National Energy Board has uh, recommended the approval, um, and they've done that after... Um, um, doing kind of doing public hearings, um, so talking to folks in the community, um, those that were approved in the, to be um, to be stakeholders were able to to offer their opinion um, to the review panel, um, and I think they've also done uh, you know they've done an environmental assessment. So it's received an approval from the National Energy Board, um, and the Trudeau government actually announced earlier this year that they would do a secondary review of pipelines as well. So now they're going to proceed with doing a climate test and doing a public, another public review that's going to be run by the government and not by the National Energy Board. So just the fact that after going through a review, it needs to now go through another review um, because, you know, <laughs> because the first review was completely inadequate. Climate change, for example, was not taken into consideration as well because it does not fit within the National Energy Board's definition of the environment. Um is just kind of, it's a little bit ludicrous. Uh, so it's going to go through that review process as well. Um, and then we should, we are told in the timeline, this keeps changing, that we should hear a decision um, soon afterwards. So I, I've, I've heard the end of the year, but I think that might have changed as well. I don't know if anyone can correct me on this one. Um, yeah, and uh, and so, and simultaneously, I think the review of uh, of Energy East is going to begin as well. So there's going to be multiple pipeline reviews happening um, simultaneously. So that's where Kinder Morgan is at in terms of process and in terms of federal government process. Um, where the movement stands, well, so just um, I think on... On Wednesday, um, so the day before the, the decision came out, um, 
there were already people that were taking action. So there was a, a there was a tanker uh, going into the terminal, and there were kayaktivists that had taken part in the break free action that were there to kind of blockade the tanker. And I don't know if you've seen any pictures, but it almost looks like the tanker is in tears when the kayaktivists <laughs> are are standing or uh, taking action in front of it. So uh, I think you know it, it's only been a few days since break free, and it's been very clear that there is a wave of people that is willing to take more and more escalated action against the pipeline. I think definitely around um, the federal government's public uh, consultations that will take place on the pipeline, there will be people engaging uh, people in the community, people that didn't get a chance to take part in the hearings the first time around because they were climate scientists or because they didn't fall within the very, very narrow definition of what is a stakeholder in the National Energy Board process. Um, I think those folks will have an opportunity to voice their opposition. Uh, meanwhile, the, meanwhile um, the slave tooth case against the pipeline is also, uh, you know, going into full force. Um, and we also have people that are uh, that are, in addition to the reviews, going to be taking taking action, taking direct action against the pipeline. So. So this is by no means the end of the story, I think, yeah. both from a, a government process point of view, but also from the movement's perspective or also the, the lawsuit that you're you're talking about that has been put forward by this First Nation. Um, what really stands out, I think, with Kinder Morgan is just around the, the traffic, the tanker traffic. It's supposed to increase by what something like 70%. And I think the uh, current Vancouver mayor has come out and said that an oil spill would be devastating um, for the area, and he's actually going to run on a platform opposing this. So I think this is just a really interesting example where we're seeing a lot of pro-pipeline rhetoric um, coming from the political level and coming from the media that, you know, Kinder Morgan actually might be an opportunity um, to really highlight some very obvious uh, pitfalls um, on a number of levels, not just from the environmental and climate lens, but also from the community lens. So I think we know that this is a story that we're going to have to follow on an ongoing basis. And, and people who may feel a little demoralized by the NEB decision should not at all feel that this is the end of the line. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and so so uh, two quick yeah. points on that. First, uh, we're going to have a music break in about one minute, Ed, so get ready for that. And two, uh, if people are energized by this NAB, uh, I'll give a TAU a chance to sort of say, to give a chance to pitch on how can people get involved uh, in, 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 with 350.org or, or break free if it's continuing uh, and, and also to sort of pitch, give us your pitch basically. The pitch. Um, well, I think, uh, you know, there's always an opportunity if you are on the West Coast or if you're visiting the West Coast to get involved with the local groups that have taken action um, against uh, the um, against the pipeline. So there's a 350 Vancouver uh, that is uh, involved. Um, there is uh, leadnow.ca uh, is also involved with uh, leading kind of the next wave of uh of actions and uh, resistance against Kinder Morgan. Um, we also have groups like Broke, which is a local group in Burnaby, taking action as well. So there's quite a few. Um, there's also opportunities to plug in and really show solidarity with the Slave of Tooth case. And um, and if there's opportunities um, to donate there, I think you can find it on the Slave of Tooth website. Um, so, but definitely, I think showing support on social media and showing solidarity with the case is very important as well. 
Um, yeah, so there's multiple ways to plug into that. And uh, if you are interested, you can also um, follow 350.org online and uh, we can offer you updates about actions that are taking place locally against Kinder Morgan. Amazing. Uh, so in our, our last section, come back. Uh, if you, We'd love to have you stay if you want for our new section. Uh, obviously, Darren is going to have his... Darren's got a, Darren's promised me he had an axe to grind. Uh, I'm so playing Kevin Farmer this week. I told uh, you. All right, amazing. Uh, does that mean you're going to... Expect all the fan mail that Kevin normally gets is coming to you. So I sure hope so. It's going to be a deluge. Um, and once again, you're listening to CIUT 89.5. This is The Green Majority. Uh, you're perhaps listening on, on rival.ca or one of our wonderful radio syndicates or, of course, our podcast, which you can be found on greenmajority.ca. Uh, but with all of that, uh, Emma, you have, uh, you have a news story for us. Yeah, it's actually a blog that's on the HuffPost, and it's by Nick Fillmore. And the title is, Attawapiskat and Fort McMurray Prove Not All Crises Are Seen as Equal. So I just felt that this was a very timely article to discuss. And, and basically, the author uh, of the, the blog um, is, is pointing out that there's been this overwhelming response, and uh, both, on, both from members of the public, the members of the Canadian public and government, to the crisis in Fort McMurray. Um, and he's comparing it rather um, sadly uh, to the crisis that has been experienced in Ottawa opposite First Nation. And... Um, you know, where we've seen about 100 uh, people uh, attempt suicide since the fall and very large numbers in, in the recent months of young people. And he's comparing the significantly different approaches, both we've seen from government and the public, and and trying to make this comparison, not by saying, you know, this is a zero-sum game, it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be empathy and compassion for the people of Fort McMurray, but why are we not seeing the same level of resources and the same reaction extended to the people of Attawapiskat? And, you know, I just wanted to make a few comments on this, and then I'll, I'll put it out to both of you, uh, Darren and Stefan. One, I'm not trying to point out that there should be some sort of competition between these two crises. They're very different in nature. But one thing we, we do see across the board is that when we see humanitarian crises, let's say, like um, wildfires destroying communities, or we see Hurricane Haiyan, Canadians are very quick to respond. What we see with uh, prolonged crises, as we've seen in our First Nation communities and that do become acute, um, like they have in Apoatiscat, is that people are sort of at a loss as to how to react, or it doesn't resonate with them, or perhaps they're just so used to seeing a certain community of people have prolonged suffering um, that there isn't the same reaction. And what I believe is important about this blog is that this should be a bit of a wake-up call for us. Um, this is happening in our own backyard uh, here in the province and we should be feeling the same level of human compassion and we should be prompting the government to respond proportionately with the resources and support that this community needs. Yeah, I think I think Canada is really good at disaster relief, uh, but but is, the disaster has to be something that we just don't like that that's an act of God, quote unquote. You know, it's like we're really good at responding to things that are just sort of outside of us uh, and then really bad at looking inward. And I think in, in, to, to highlight this point, you look at the reactions uh, between the, 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 the state of reactions between uh, the Fort McMurray "We Will Rebuild" uh, and the John Crutchian's uh, Attawapiskat. People from Attawapiskat should just move. And people would say that might be called just 
pure out and out racism, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, like well, it's like it, it's funny. It's it's we don't accept the reason why Adopiskat needs to stay there, but of course, oil is a perfect reason why Fort McMurray needs to stay there. Uh, it's it's as if there's we've decided that 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 our reasons for people for where people are make sense, where other people's reasons for where they are doesn't make sense, and therefore they should submit to ours. Uh, and that's that's yeah, it's out and out racism, obviously. Uh, but Darren, uh, you have an axe to grind. Uh, I do. It is now twelve. It's now eleven fifty, which is the Kevin Farmer time of the show. Uh, so grind that axe, sir. Which is great because I can actually provide a segue and answer uh, Ma's question at the same time because I'm that good. Well done. Um, so the, the the thing about that, I think um, I think honestly, my honest assessment uh, is that Canadians are very prideful of their thing. They they like to help and and genuinely they're very helpful. And we do have a generally speaking a national identity around you know, coming to the rescue. Um, however, we're very, very concerned with being seen to be do so, uh, has been my observation. And I think that plays a role in why, uh, generally we're a lot better at sort of flashy things rather than ongoing things, because it's harder to be sort of commended and be seen and be honored for helping an ongoing problem with no easy long short-term solution. Um, you know, so people love to do that and they'll post pictures. Look, I donated, you should donate too, which is great. We want to help all those people, but there is a segment of not very nice pride that goes along with that, that I think contributes to the issue that that you've both sort of pointed out, um, so the the way that this provides a transference to what I the other thing I want to talk about, which was on our 500th episode when I added a little bit at the end, um, I was actually having a really rough uh, day that day, so I was feeling very existential and philosophical. Um, and but it, it's been it's been a thing that I've been thinking about for a while, which is this idea that you know even if we solve climate change, there's a bunch of other problems that are coming, um, and. The only real way to do this rather than just bumping from problem to problem is to start bundling them, especially when the solutions overlap. Uh, one of these problems, and, and I've been reading, you know, because I've had so much free time, it's pretty easy to get through all the environment news, even as much as there is, because I do that anyway. Uh, in my normal schedule, with all the additional time, I've also been able to burn through just about every major article written on the American uh, political sp- spectrum and have made it as far as the technology and sciences category. All th- Every article almost every day on getting into that third topic. Um, that's how much free time I have. Um, and one of the things there that I've seen, I mean, we've been, there's been some really amazing stuff coming uh, out of the science pages and this will make sense in a second where I'm going with this. Um, we have uh, four uh, robots called Valkyrie uh, that were just developed to uh, go and actually not just survey Mars, but actually be our being, uh, were released by NASA for tweaking to go and set up permanent habitable uh, space on Mars. So we're now talking about colonizing Mars within 20 years, uh, at least to a limited degree, which will be set up by robots. Um, we have uh, all sorts of manufacturing, 3D prototyping, rap- rapid prototyping, uh, laser cutting, all sorts of automation, massive advances in AI and uh, that uh, the so-called, uh, so, what's that word? The uncanny valley mm. when it comes to animatronics and, uh, and Android technology. Um, the the pace and and scale of our technological ability um, from the powerful and rich nations and companies, uh, Google's automated cars. I could spend the next four hours talking about all the stuff that you've probably heard of some of, but you, I guarantee you haven't heard of all of it. Of just these mind-bogglingly futuristic things that are either just arrived, just about to arrive, uh, or will are are conceivably going to happen very soon. There's one common chord here, though, on almost all of them is that. 
and, and not so much with the ones I mentioned. I wish I had better notes, but I just didn't. I don't have my computer today. Uh, but there's almost one common chord across all of them, which is that either directly or indirectly, almost all of these things wipe out entire sectors of the workforce. Completely redundant. Uh, completely wipe out manufacturing. Manufacturing is going to cease to exist in all, in all but most specialized cases within 15 or 20 years due to automation. Uh, basically, every all, there's very, very few jobs that are going to be left uh, once industry gets a handle on mass producing these technologies. And um, so we're going to have another crisis. We're going to have another crisis where basically 60% of our population is out of work. Um, now we can let that happen and then continue to feed into this uh, narrative where 1% of the planet has all the money and all the power and the rest of us are essentially serfs and or slaves to this because we're simply left by the wayside. Or we can acknowledge that these that this concentration of wealth, while it's been pretty awesome in the form of um, producing really amazing technologies that what good are they if they don't benefit us? Right. So I think along with this and when we're solving some of these problems and part of the reasons why I'm so interested in, in Bernie Sanders and, and stuff like that is, you know, just taking climate action isn't good enough there. The, the, the climate change is a symptom of a much larger problem with this, which is the fact that the way that we're organizing organizing our society currently is simply set up to create these types of problems at this scale. It didn't used to because the scale was small enough, but now the scale is bigger and some of these problems are coming out. And if we don't, take a look, take this opportunity to take a look. And I think it's also the only way to solve issues around climate change is to take a fundamental look at what's causing these problems, what are causing these errors, why we suddenly realize we have a global disaster on our hands and the system is paralyzed and doing nothing because people with all the power have decided that it's not in their best interest to do anything about it, that there is a funda fundamental underlying problem here. So I'm not going to get into what I think that solution is. That's as, you, as, a, as a wrap up. I know Ed wants to say something here too. Um, was that the... The, basically, that's where I was going with the three-part series that mm -hmm. unfortunately, because of my illness, got sort of kiboshed. You did an excellent job standing in, but I didn't get to my third part. So we're going to just, we're actually going to re just redo the whole thing when I'm better. But that's what I'm getting at, is that there, this isn't sort of just idle musing. Um, there is a fundamental, even deeper problem below this stuff. Um, and unless we address that, it's, we're just going to move on to the next issue. Um, and I think that's what we can really be talking about at this point, because I think there's actual interest in nonviolent revolution. I think the, the Bernie Sanders, uh, it, ongoing watching that has shown that, that there is taste for it. And I think that without it, we're lost. Cause even if we solve climate change, we have 10 other problems coming that are just like it. And that we're not going to have a trouble dealing with for the exact same reasons. Um, I just wanted to mention, um, I, I actually know quite a lot of, I watched some videos on, on robots, you know, different jobs they could take over, you know, um, and, and one that I found interesting was, um, with, with the advancements in AI technology, there's a, a new, um, it's sort of like an AI, um, and basically it, can replace what doctors do in that it, you know, knows all the research, you know, medical research results. It knows like the entire patient history. It knows, and it can take, you know, samples from patient histories from like all across the nation. Um, and, and they're saying that like it would have, you know, uh, much better results than any doctor could, um, and, and much lower, you know, patient death, uh, that, that tend to happen a lot with, with actual doctors. And it was just something interesting where it's not a job you usually think robots could take over, but 
it's definitely interesting. Is it a job? Robots are going to take it. <laughs> yep, yep, basically. <laughs> well, there, I feel like there's uh, once once a robot can host a community radio station, then I'm concerned. <laughs> there's already the, call me when that happens. We've already spoken about how the uh, there's bots doing all the all the news journalism on sports. So yeah, we're it's a matter <laughs> we're just talking about a few v- uh, version generations here. Right. We just, they just need a, they just, you know, the, they just need your silky smooth voice. So just never record your voice <laughs> in enough words so they can then say it, and then you're fine. Damn. Yeah. Uh, although they could just take, oh, then, you know, not, you know, to, to expand this further, they could just take all of the recordings of all of this podcast, previous podcasts, now 500 episodes of words. They could probably do a pretty good you impression. I, I could do it of myself now with current <laughs> existing technology. That's true. Uh, so we have, uh, so, so four minutes left. And I think to jump off uh, just on your new little piece, because I have one thought on that, uh, which is, well, two thoughts on that. First, uh, I said this on the last week's show. Uh, I don't think Bernie Sanders is going to win. Uh, oh, he's not. But the point the point is, is that the movement, despite all of the efforts of everybody in the establishment, is now still saying Bernie or bust. Anyway, that's a longer conversation yeah, yeah, we're going yeah. to. But whether or not he makes the domination is irrelevant to the point I was making. No, Just for sure. No, for sure. And I, I was actually building off that point, uh, which that I, I think w- w- one of the most interesting uh, correlators to that was what you do, w- what what that sort of coalition people does afterwards. And I think the most interesting opportunity there is to do so, is to actually start doing what the Tea Party did very effectively. Uh, which was to go to the state and local levels and, and 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 use your influence from from above to actually sort of win those smaller seats and actually shift and shift politics from the bottom up. And I think that's actually where a lot of the uh, a lot of the opportunity exists within this movement. Uh, but Emma, we have about two minutes left, and I want to get your your thoughts on on really any part of the whole show. Yeah, I, it's hard not to comment on this most recent thread. I think something that's really significant, particularly that has happened in the U- U.S., is the expansion of the conversation. The fact that someone like Bernie Sanders can come in and be in such a prominent uh, position in a presidential race has dramatically extended the things that are part of the public dialogue um, that would not have been acceptable. You know, he successfully forced a conversation on whether or not the U.S. should change its policy on Palestine and Israel. That yeah. alone, even just forcing yeah. them to have that conversation, means we're we're at a crux of an extremely yeah. important time in history. And he's, you know, he's coming up on a movement. So as much as he might be an exceptional person, it's about a sea change, right? It's it's not that all about one individual. It's about that the that there's a shift in the collective psyche that's happening I'd say around the world but I think it is of particular note in the US and it's about bringing a human face to things I think the what you've discussed today Darren um, that is often overlooked is that we can mechanize things we can talk about the achievement of function and you've extracted the human being and what we are often not capable of projecting or analyzing when we do things like that I'm saying I'm using a royal we obviously is that we we can't always understand what's been lost by taking out the human interaction. And uh, I think what Bernie Sanders has done is injected humanity back into a lot of discussions where it was missing previously. Uh, and what a way to finish the show. Thank you so much, M.A. Thank you so much, Darren. Great to have you back. Uh, thank you to both our guests, Kevin and Atia, uh, and to our tech ed, of course. Uh, we will have a bonus show today, so uh, if you're on the podcast, keep listening. And if not, everyone have a great green week, and we'll see you all real soon. Hello, and welcome <laughs> to the Green Majority After Show. Um, joining me, dear dear Luinata, are Sabina and Stefan and Thank Darren. You. Yeah. And um, Darren. In a little separate containment chamber. <laughs> we've, 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 uh, we've, 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 we
Oh, well, I'm forgetting the word. I'm quarantined. There we go. Quarantined. I knew you'd that. <laughs> um, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about activism. Activism in the 21st century. Um, what works and what doesn't um, and what's changing. So I wanted to start by talking about uh, petitions. There are a bunch of sites today that, like Avaz, Change.org, as well as organizations such as 350, Sierra Club, basically every organization is using petitions as a form of activism. Um, but with the proliferation of petitions and the ease of use of these petitions, ease of signing, um, I'm just wondering what you guys think about uh, whether or not they're actually making a difference anymore. So uh, that's an interesting question because it's always it, it's it's obviously I think le- like the number the numbers now have gotten inflated like everything else I think you know uh, in that you know two hundred and fifty thousand signatures now is so much easier can you imagine yeah. like getting that many signatures uh, you know before the internet would be unthinkable mm-hmm. basically impossible <laughs> uh, but well, the, also uh, before the internet but now it's, now you can do an, another thing before the internet there was almost a billion less people too so that number was less meaningful is less meaningful now. That is true. Yes, um, but, uh, but like, like even us getting, but I think that, that that has an impact, right? I think that has a, yeah, and I think also the, I think also the ease of which you're signing is also changed the amount of which you're necessarily involved in the petition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if I if I if if I'm met on the street and I actually talk to someone, I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do this. I'm I'm much much more involved than than the 17 things I might say on I'm doing on change.org. Uh, but I think that's also the scale is also actually is also allowing them to do other things as well. So change.org actually has been, has been proven to be relatively effective uh, because of the scale of the of the database it creates when, in those petitions. So that's the thing is it's in mass. These petitions have become a, a very very effective organizing tool mm. uh, rather than the goal of itself being the thing you hand off to someone. Uh, it's the it's the now the database of people you can have uh, rally around these other issues, and that's become the much more effective part of the mm. petition. Based model. So do you think there's a, a specific number now that governments will actually look at a petition and well, say, oh, people care about this? We should we should look at the U.S. Uh, there's a model there that I really I actually really like, uh, and I forget what the exact number is, but in the U.S. Um, there is a uh, – I think it might have been a specific Obama thing that he brought in. I think it's 10,000 people. Is it 10,000? I think so. There, there's a threshold. I actually thought it was 40, but whatever, oh. uh, 40,000. Um, but anyway, there's a certain number of people where if you sign a petition and it's it's not just any petition, it has to be petitioned through a specific site on the government website uh, where over a certain amount, the government must respond to it. They have to at least acknowledge it and issue a statement. Now, that doesn't force them into any action, but what it does is it forces them to at least acknowledge something and state what their p- p- proposed response is. Now, this gets done in a hilarious stupid way sometimes like the the threshold was reached with a petition to like ban somebody from the country like there was real there was some even some really goofy ones and they were just forced to put out a press release on something completely goofy um so i think we could implement something similar where uh what we would have would be there would be a so it, it couldn't be any petition of ours sorry you're done uh none of that stuff it would have to be curated through a government website and there would be a an officer who is tasked with allowing or not allowing certain polls to happen. Here's the catch though. Here's how we prevent democracy or over control. Everything that's ever applied must be posted on the website. 
So if they reject one from going ahead with the poll, you can see what it was and, and you could you know do a news story and independent journalists or whatever could say, hey, look, here's the question they refuse to answer. This is a big scandal, right? So if it was like, you know, do you vote that cats are awesome? Um, they could reject the vote on it, preventing the government from having to issue a response, but their voice couldn't be silenced and it would be transparent because you would go to the rejected you know petitions list and see, like, okay, that one was in fact stupid. Uh, but I think it's a fantastic idea with the slight caveat that I added uh, as an improvement on the American system. But but I think it has to be through a dedicated government thing. And I think the only uh, impetus from the government, which should be exactly what the U.S. is doing, which is a they must issue a response to the poll if it reaches a threshold. I love the idea. I, I kind of like the silly ones, too, to be honest. I think I think anything that encourages engagement with, with, with yeah. government, I'm down with. Like, I don't care if it's, you know, make a National Cats with Hat Day Actually, on June I, 24th. <laughs> uh, also, by the way, National Cats with Hat Day, June 24th. It's trending now. Uh, I, like, I, I think it's I, I don't see any downside in letting the silly ones go because if 10,000 people think this is funny screw it it's funny can I just, we I, talk about Bodie McBoatface for a second yes we can talk about <laughs> we can get to go. Oh, this is brilliant so for those for context uh, we haven't done the bonus show for two weeks so we haven't actually had to explain weird things that happened on the side uh, and two weeks ago M.A. Uh, M.A. Uh, Deirdre and I were, were doing the show uh, and we were con- we were really wanting to get Bodie McBoatface into the last section of the show uh, and then we just forgot I like we just totally forgot we ran out of time and I think we even ended up having time to do it but we were all just like, I don't know what to say. And then we finished the show and we're like, Bodie McBoatface. Duh. So please, Deirdre, talk about Bodie McBoatface. Um, so Bodie McBoatface um, was an official petition by the UK government um, on what a research ship should be named. Um, Bodie McBoatface beat, beat David Attenborough by about 10 times the votes, <laughs> I believe. Um, and they didn't end up using the name. No. So they ended up naming the boat Sir David Attenborough. Uh, and now there's another petition online, um, speaking of petitions, um, getting trying to get David Attenborough to change his name to Bodie McBoatface <laughs> officially. <laughs> I think that would be the funniest outcome of this, <laughs> is if David Attenborough now had to change his name to Bodie McBoatface. Narrated by Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> I think he's old enough. I could he would maybe go for it. I don't know. He seems he seems pretty fun. Yeah. yeah. And can you imagine like the, all the history books having to refer to him as Bodie McBoatface <laughs> for the rest of time? The 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 famous research scientist and science promoter, formerly known as David Attenborough. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Would he be Sir Bodie McBoatface? He would though? be Sir Bodie McBoatface. You can't take you, they couldn't take away his knighthood just because he renamed himself Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> Um, but sorry, uh, maybe something more relevant. Maybe let's talk about <laughs> the absolute. No, no, no. One more, one more. The okay. absolute pinnacle, the absolute peak of that joke would come when the Queen was forced to acknowledge him as Sir Bodie McBoatface. Oh, that's true. By the that's Queen true. of England, oh. that would be the pinnacle, and then we could let it go. After. Yeah, yeah. Then we're all done. We're done. So my question is: Would donations help petitions more than the actual signatures? Because now, now donations are becoming a more significant, more significant part of petitions. So do you think the donations are more important now than the actual, well, obviously the organizational tool is really important, but is it more important than the signatures? Oh, unquestionably. Yeah. Unquestionably. I don't think there's, you know, you get, you, the things you can do with a million, you can get a million more people to sign a signature with, with the $10,000, right? Like the amount of which, the amount of which $1 can stretch to a number of quote unquote signatures or something or anything like that uh, is huge. And I think that's, again, I think this is, this is change.org and Avaz trying to find ways to be more useful and in really effective in activism, which is, yeah, we can get your signature, but now it's really easy to send $2 over, over the internet. Uh, and so wouldn't just giving us a 
to be also, and then and then suddenly you don't you don't have to, you have ten thousand people and actually a war chest of twenty thirty forty thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars, and that that now you're a campaign. Now you've given someone a salary for a year. You actually have you have way more traction uh, and, and ability to actually make change than than you had before. I actually, Deirdre, you have. I'm I'm sorry, Sabine. Let me just spit this out really quick. Deirdre, that was brilliant. A brilliant suggestion. I'll tell you why. Because you just, I, I love it. I love this idea so much, and you don't even know what you just suggested. Um, t- I took a completely different tact on it. W- with the previous idea, with the thing I was saying about the mandated whatever government, what if we had a system where we could do it, okay, where it passed a vote, uh, where instead of asking the government to issue a response, uh, like to comment on something or to issue a statement on something, if citizens could force referendums. Now, the argument against referendums is they're extremely expensive. So if you had a threshold and a dollar limit where if you could get a certain amount of signatures and raise the money yourself, you could force the government to have no choice. They would have to issue a federal referendum on an issue that would be binding. Now, that would be fucked up, and that that would be fucked up in an awesome way because there's a whole bunch of stuff that polls really well that governments will just not go anywhere the fucking near because (laughs) they don't want to have to deal with the implications. Like They they don't want to have to deal with it, right? And so these conversations get shoved to the sideline. If we could put something in like that, that's democracy. Money. (laughs) And I think that when people actually uh, do commit to giving donations, it's a lot more impactful because they're clearly not just sitting there at 12 a.m. in the morning (laughs) reading like an article on change.org and then just signing their name. It's something that they really and truly care about. And they add that, you know, monetary donation where it shows that, okay, these 40,000, 50,000 people really care about this and they are actually willing to back it up with uh, what they care about, which I think that's a lot more important. And because we live in the society where money is important, I think that's that kind of... uh, makes you walk the talk in a way. And I, and I don't think people really understand how effectively uh, things can be run on so little money. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, you know, not to, like, uh, we have, there, there are nonprofits out there who have been running for three years on basically a $30,000 the first time. And, then, and they've basically been like, you know, because one person, an ED who knows how to start some money and has ways of this can run on such, such a little amount that you can build an incredible base, an incredible amount of work on such a, sm- what we we can see a small amount of money, uh, especially if you have ten. Th- you know, if you have a hundred thousand signatures and every one of them gave you one dollar, you actually now have a mid-sized nonprofit. <laughs> like you're running a, you're running a, like that's that's yeah. that's how small this really ra- that that action is. And you have a small mid-sized nonprofit running for a year. The amount you can do on the particular issue you care about is monumental. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think so. I, I, yeah, I think. Yeah, money compared adding a adding adding the donation component to this petitions thing is is an incredible way to actually crowdsource action on these issues. Mm. Yeah, to me, I mean, change.org and Avaz are are kind of like Tinder in a lot of ways because like <laughs> you just they make it so that was easy. The quote of the day. <laughs> quote of the day. You just you just keep going. You just <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, no, not this one. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, um, I, the second thing I wanted to talk about was um, protests um, with the Internet, technology, um, everything, all these online communities. It's making it a lot easier to organize, like you, you pointed out. Um, but with that comes kind of a surge in the number of protests we have, um, especially in main centers like Ottawa, um, Toronto. Do you think – do you guys think that the the – protests and the act of the protest is becoming less effective? Uh, it's 
interesting question. I, I think I think again, what's funny with this is I, 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 I to me it all goes back to organizing. I think because I, I think that the the power of the protest once again is not so much in the uh, in the sheer scale. Like it, it does do one thing. The protests and large protests are incredibly effective at getting making people at least listen to you. Uh, which and there's a whole bunch of fascinating research, and one of my favorite uh, quotes of all time comes from a person about how uh, about how about how protest and riot are the are the are the voices of the uh, of the of the silent, uh, and that when you when 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 your society gives you no other way to have your voice heard, uh, the only way you can do that is to is to take to the streets, uh, and that's and that physically take, that's true. That's f- like that's physically taking to the streets is the only way to have other people hear you because that's the only way because you're marginalized in every other way, uh, and so I think there's obviously a consistent power on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, but yeah, I think that what's interesting is the 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 camaraderie you build at a at, at an action is so much greater uh, than 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 what you get online ever. Yeah. Uh, and I think what you do is you sort of again, I think these protests, these major flashpoints, end up being really recruiting tools uh, for the actual ongoing b- movement building work that you just don't see nearly as that you don't, that aren't nearly as obvious, uh, but definitely does still exist. Mm. What, what makes me really wary about protests and, you know, petitions is that I think people are kind of tired and they're sick of it. And, and they're, they're tired in the way that, for example, how many people have been protesting this pipeline that was just approved? Mm-hmm. I think, like, mm-hmm. all of the First Nations or most of the yeah. First Nations, um, the mayor, like, very high-powered people have been protesting nonstop. And a lot of people have just been saying no to this pipeline. And then yet it was still approved and is still going through Uh, the environmental checkups without, you know, upstream or downstream emissions, which is what people have been protesting about. And they didn't even, um, they they acknowledge it and they're aware of it. And there's really good camaraderie being built. But I think the question that MA asked during the show, it's like, how do you define success? And I think that depends on the activists themselves. But then I think on the on the grander scale, it's really annoying, you know, putting a lot of this effort and doing all of this stuff and, you know, getting all of this camaraderie. But then, you know, you have all of these people that are in this position of power that can just, you know, take that away just like that. Yeah. So and, I, and, yeah, and, exa- and, and I think what's interesting about this, I think the most common uh, the ways that these things are changed, the way the, the most effective way to protest protests are one of the larger, more ways protests effective is if you do get a movement building, then uh, you get a wider net of people than you fully expect. Uh, Campen, who works with the loves to tell the story of the the work that was the actions that were taken to desegregate buses uh, in, mm-hmm. in 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 um, in the South uh, in, in that states, uh, which was basically based around this ridiculous. It's it's you, you it's one of those plans you hear and you're like that's ridiculous, and then you all then also the same thing you think is like no way that definitely will work and then it did <laughs> uh, which was when they're, they're, they realized that they were not getting a lot of traction to desegregate uh, bus in the south and so they just had a bunch of, of, of rich kids rich white kids from the, from the north who were who, who, who had you know who were who are privileged, but also were, were progressives, join a bunch of of their of their of, of, their, of their black friends to drive through the South, and then suddenly you got all these images of these rich white Northern kids getting the shit kicked out of them by by racists, um, and and then and then all, now all of their parents are in the North are suddenly like, wait a minute, this is no longer access, accessible, and it's it's the, it's, the, it's you know it's not for the people attending. I think often it's for the people who are affected by the people who are attending. Mm-hmm. One crazy idea. Uh, I think th- there's another test too, and Stefan, you and I talked ex- extensively about this both on and off air after the, our trip to New York mm-hmm. uh, about how that was an 
you know, a, a physical action of epic proportions, record-breaking proportions. Uh, and I think arguably the response relative to what happened was basically zero. Yeah. Um, and so what I think this highlighted for me was not, you know, when people were saying after that, you know, the people who were being honest, I think, you know, the people who weren't, oh, we did this and it changed everything. And, and you know, there's always sort of a rah-rah-rah component. But the, the folks who were sort of looking at it a little more calculably, calculatedly and a little bit more honestly, I think were acknowledged that, yes, this, you know, we look at all the effort we put into it and it really didn't result in much. I mean, there was almost near blackout in, on the media and the and the media's ability to do this now. As You know, to come back to the an axe I was grinding earlier, um, Bernie Sanders has like six times in a row, just like climate change, one after the other, keep beating its own records for the number of people he can pull out to rallies in states that shouldn't even theoretically be in play for the Democrats. Um, and... What we're looking at here, I think, is a change in in the type of not not so much that actions aren't effective. It's that the type of action is is certain types of action effective. And the and the key factor here that's changed is that the mainstream media, unlike 50 years ago, is now entirely owned by uh, uh, ratings and and profit only corporations. These profit only corporations have are all giant donors to the Hillary Clinton. Uh, campaign, so it's not even a matter of oh well, it's all the you know it's some dark you know conspiracy theory lizard man Illuminati nonsense. No, they're all they make millions and billions and billions of dollars a year running campaign ads. They don't want money out of politics because that will cost them billions of dollars of revenue. It's it's a very it's a straight line from money to Hillary Clinton for them, and so they've blacked out entirely him. So the types of actions about you know getting a headline or getting any news coverage is very very easy for the for the conglomerate media now to just completely black you out so that you don't exist. Um, so the types of actions that are going to get attention and the types of actions that I think works are ones where you actually hurt the companies physically and doing things like, and I don't mean going and beating up their executives. What I mean is that doing things like break free, I don't, I think we've been pushed there, um, because those do get attention, even if it's successfully blacked out in the media, which now they, they aren't always because, you know, there, there's occasionally some honest journalism that happens. Uh, occasionally independent media is strong enough to get the word out despite the blackout and occasionally the mainstream media attempts to try and spin it to make them look bad and sort of gets the message out but with their slant on it um, but really what happens the real voice here is when you start costing them money uh, and that's the sort of action that's happening. So like physically blocking trains and costing them a million bucks a day to keep a tanker in the, in port, for instance, that gets their attention. Now that's going to not going to guilt them into doing the right thing, but you, now you've at least slapped them across the face a little bit and be like, we're not going anywhere. Um, and I think that's the sort of, I, I think that's where we're at. I think, uh, I, I honestly think that the only real result of just a traditional March, for instance, is, and I, and I don't want to, I don't want to underemphasize how important this is. I think it is actually very important, but it's mostly just raw, raw team building for the people that already agree with each other. Uh, and I think mm. it's very useful at that. I felt very energized and very refreshed being surrounded by, you know, a, Ha, nearly half a million people that agreed with me is going to make you feel good no matter what it is. You know, mm -hmm. that's part of the reason why I like going to comic conventions because I feel like amazing <laughs> as opposed to a slight weirdo like the rest of the time. <laughs> um, but you know, but I think I think that's really where we're at. I think there there it's not that we shouldn't do them, but like we have to understand which ones are effective and and what what do you want to do? Do you do you need to rally your base or do you need to or do you need to force somebody's hand? Because if you need to force somebody's hand, the rah rah stuff ain't going to work. Cool. Okay. So I, I'm just going to pose this question to you guys. Do you think, I mean, it's kind of goes back to, to what you were talking about. And when you were talking about, let's say, 
corporate social responsibility of like a really really bad company but that that has like in its budget just that one sector has for example 100 million dollars in its budget so do you like do you guys think it's more possible to do good if you just go through within the system and rise up to a certain mm-hmm. level and then just you know like force Destroy. the hand that way rather than <laughs> rather than you know like I mean, I think both is very important, but seeing like a lot of people, you know, they, they pr- protest so much and then it's it's discouraging. Like it's not that it shouldn't be happening and it shouldn't be that discouraging. It's just, I, it feels that whenever you're in a position of power, of course you had to do a lot to get there and probably like not very amazing things. Like you probably didn't, you weren't like the best at all times, but then when you get there, you could easily like change a lot and you can make a really like, a very big difference with the amount of resources that you would have. So, I mean, which way is the better way, really? I think I think it comes down to again. I'm not gonna. I I, I feel I feel wrong. Like I guess so. Uh, uh, so I, I feel, I'll actually try to answer the question because uh, like I was going to split the middle and say something else, but I'll try to actually answer the question because uh, that only seems fair. Um, I think that the. I think you're basically asking whether or not we want society to keep running while we try to fix it or if we stop it immediately. Like, if I say that everyone should just go out and protest immediately, if everyone just spent their... If, if, if we actually had three million people go out and block all coal and all energy access immediate for the for the next three months like if that if that, that was we had that kind of movement suddenly the, there's at some point in that time there's a f- switch and at some point on the switch is well you've fucked this up for so long now you got to fix it uh, and, and 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 I think that's the the, the environmental have been for a long time have been saying we have the solutions that's literally what Atia said uh, but basically I think the protest has to be coming from a place of like can only be successful it's coming from a place of of if we succeed in stopping you we actually do have an answer to this question um and and then the other op and then going through it is again uh is the idea of well we got to keep things got everyone mean we want to make sure we keep everyone alive while we're making this transition and so i think what's more effective i think is an interesting question because i think one is literally stopping everything hoping there are no unintended consequences of that stopping of everything and then just rebooting basically society uh and the other is keeping on what we know is broken and then trying to fix it as it's as it's trolling along and both when you hear about them sound ridiculous uh which is why i think that we're sort of stuck with our our hybrid option that we're seeing now uh which obviously is not going fast enough but at least it's something mm-hmm. but uh, yeah it's a it's it's, it's interesting because like if everyone was just trying to build it in, in inside of them they wouldn't be then there would be there, there would be no pressure on them actually doing enough to fix it you know there's the reason why that why terrible companies have uh have corporate sustainability problems is because they were forced to buy people mm-hmm. right uh and so it's like like I think it comes down to effectiveness. I think some people are more effective organizers and campaigners. Some people are more effectively working quietly inside inside things. And I think people finding their right fit within within society and within the sustainable future is the only way to do it. Okay. Last question. Um, so, how are we going to stop JT from uh, building this pipeline? I think he won't. Honestly, no? I think he'll. I think. I think he's going to use this one as the as the one he says no to to get Energy East through. Because uh, they're both going through the same the same thing. This one is so unpopular. Mm. Uh, like as we discussed, I think yeah. I think this one will get stopped by 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 the climate regulation pieces and the, and the other pieces of that, mm. the new regulations, as as a legitimizing factor for the process in general, which will then mean they'll the, the support the, let the, in their minds then will be like, look, we did that, so energy just gets to go through. That's my prediction. And they will announce it at the same time. 
Oh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, no, it'll it'll be. The, I'm I'm telling you right now. This is a serious prediction. It will be the same press conference. Hmm. They will say Energy East is approved, and we're killing Kinder Morgan because that will so. That'll throw basically a hand grenade into people who are going to scream about Energy East because yeah. all the news headlines will be like, oh, big victory for climate folks. Trust me. Pure politics 101. Same press conference. Mm. Count on it. Mm. Uh, final, uh, very, very quick comment on, on or uh, my closing statement on both would be I will I will pull back from my own opinion on that, but I will just simply note, because we're talking a lot about U.S. politics today, um, that there is a also been blacked out by the major mainstream media, but I think very notable if you're paying attention to anything other than that, uh, is there's a very, very, I don't know if you you folks have heard the the phrase Bernie or bust movement. Uh, but these are the folks that are basically saying it's Bernie Sanders or nobody mm-hmm. uh, and that they will not show up and support Hillary Clinton, which is why people are seriously worried about Trump winning. So there's even a portion of those people who have said, and, and we're talking about a lot of people, we're talking about millions of voters here across the US who are saying that if, if Bernie Sanders is not the delegate, they will vote for Trump. They will show up and vote for Trump. And the reason is, is exactly what... Um, uh, 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 Stefan was getting out a second ago, which was, if you're not going to give us keys to the house, we're going to burn the fucking thing down. And these aren't people that agree with Trump on policy. These are people who want to throw a hand grenade into the system and say, fuck you, we're not doing as you told us. You do what we say or we're burning the whole goddamn house down. And while I don't necessarily agree with that, I do understand where they're coming from. And this is the sort of climate that we're living in right now. Yeah. Uh, I want to go on record and saying this for their stupid. Uh, I'm sorry. There's literally nuclear warheads uh, that are in this game. Uh, don't burn the house down. I live here. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, as it's, as I said, right. that was it's, not it's a, my personal opinion. I was just informing people that that's the, that's the climate yeah. we're in right now. You know, yeah, that's fair. Uh, on that note, yeah. <laughs> thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>